You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Amen. Okay, so we'll be in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, and I'm going to read through it with us just uh, slowly. And so um, if you have a Bible or or an app that you prefer to use, I'd, I'd urge you to go ahead and open it. Uh, to the latter part of 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we'll spend the majority of our time in 1 Samuel 16. Now, if you were here last week, um, a lot has happened since, um, since last week's text. Um, in chapter 8, uh, Israel asked God for a king, right? thereby rejecting God's own kingship over them. And God grants that request, and a man named Saul is crowned king. And long story short, we miss all of his life by where we're we're going today. Um, Long story short, Saul fails to be the righteous king that not only God requires, but that God's people also desire. And although he starts off well, defeating many of Israel's surrounding enemies, he ends up failing to trust God, and he offers up unlawful sacrifices to God and also fails to keep direct commands that God has given him, which is where we pick up now in chapter 15. In chapter 15, starting in verse 35, it says this, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send him and get him for me. We will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. 
And so here's what's taken place over the last few chapters. This Saul who fails to live up to what God has called him to be, fails to be the faithful king that God requires and that the people desire. That king, um, his authority has now been divested from him. In fact, in verses 26 and 28, earlier in chapter 15, we, we hear that directly from Samuel where he says to Saul that he won't return with him because Saul rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord rejected Saul from being king over Israel. And in verse 28, Saul says to, or Samuel says to Saul that the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and have given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And so God's spirit and the authority that is vested in Saul has been removed and it will be assumed by another, one who is better than him, one who will be faithful. And who was this coming king? Well, we didn't have to wait long for God to introduce us to him, right? We find out that he will be one of the sons of Jesse. God tells Samuel, in fact, not to mourn for Saul, but rather to pick himself up and to prepare to anoint this new king that God has provided, this better king that will come. And upon arriving at Jesse's house, he sends for Jesse's 12 sons. And as the sons come together and they begin to, begin to congregate, Samuel's eyes land upon this son named Eliab. And Samuel thinks to himself, surely this is the man that God has chosen. And see, part of the story that we missed with regards to Saul is that Saul was a man who, who stood out. Uh, in the Bible, in, in 1 Samuel in particular, it tells us that Saul... Not, not only figuratively stood out, but that he literally stood out, that he was a head taller than, than anybody else in Israel and that he was incredibly or extremely good looking. The Bible would use the word handsome. And so what we can infer by Samuel's eyes meeting the person of Eliab in Jesse's house is that Eliab was similarly blessed. That he was tall, that he was strong, that he was handsome and that he looked like sort of the archetypal king figure. And yet we find out in, in verse 7 that that's not exactly what God's looking for anymore. In fact, there's a verse in there that maybe we've, we've heard. It sounds familiar to us, right? God tells Samuel, when you're looking for the new king, don't look at his outward appearance. Don't look at his height or his stature. Because man looks at the outward appearance, but God is looking through that to the heart of the man. And so this new king that God is anointing, this new king who we know to be David, might not be outwardly impressive, but in the heart he will be a giant And so we find out that Eliab's not the one, and Jesse goes on to parade ten more sons before Samuel, all of them which are rejected. And so finally Samuel asks this question, are these all of your sons? And Jesse says, well, there is one more, but he's out tending the sheep. And we find out that 
this son tending the sheep, this lowest, the least, the least expected to be king is in fact the one that God purposes to anoint as his new king. And so David comes into the house, Samuel takes the horn of oil, anoints him in the midst of all of his brothers, and in that moment, the spirit of the Lord comes upon David, it tells us, from that day forward. And so the new king is here. And he doesn't look like what they expected, but he is the king that God has chosen. Now this whole sequence is a little bit odd because in this transition of God's Spirit leaving Saul and coming upon David as God's newly anointed king, David does not become king in this moment. There's a period in which David will serve in Saul's court as an instrumentalist. He'll go on to sit underneath Saul's reign and rule for for a significant period of time before actually assuming the throne. And this whole sequence, as we've seen throughout 1 Samuel during our time in this book throughout Advent, this whole sequence is a foreshadowing for us of the coming of Jesus. You see, in much the same way, we are ruled by unfaithful kings. We have kings in authority over us who cannot lead us in righteousness, nor can they lead us to righteousness. And the good news of Advent is that God has sent another king to us. It's that God has sent a king who is better than those kings. A king who will rule faithfully where those kings have failed to rule faithfully. God has sent us a king that he has anointed. One that will lead us both in righteousness and in fact make us righteous. By that same righteousness that characterizes him. And you see this new king that God has sent us is his own son, Jesus. And much like David, Jesus wasn't what the first century Jews expected. You see, a first century Jew would have been looking for someone with significant political power, someone with significant physical might, someone with incredible oratory capability, a leader, master among men. This is who they would have had their eyes open for. In fact, if we're honest, he's not really what we would expect either, is he? You wouldn't attach a person described as Jesus as described to the words world-conquering Savior. Jesus is a Jewish man born to a virgin, unmarried mother, and a simple carpenter. And he's born in the last place that you'd expect a king to be born. He's born in a little town called Bethlehem in Nazareth. Which we get, we get a clue to the importance of Nazareth in the Gospels. Where, where one of Jesus' soon-to-be disciples is told that the Messiah comes from Nazareth. And he says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? 
kind of the way we think of Dallas. Can anything good come from Dallas? He's born into this little town called Bethlehem in Nazareth. He lives 30 years in relative obscurity, learning his father's trade as a carpenter until, until like David, he is anointed in the River Jordan by John the Baptist and the Spirit of God descends upon him in the form of a dove. God speaks and says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And by that anointing, brothers and sisters, we come to understand that a new reign, a new rule, has been initiated. A transfer of power has taken place. And you know, Isaiah tells us that Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. And yet, like David, he is God's faithful king. And he will unseat the unfaithful kings and he will reign in glory and peace. So Advent, Advent is a time of great joy, celebrating that the anointed king is here. That he's here and that he's among us, that he dwells with us is what John one says. And yet, Advent is also a season of longing. Because although God's anointed one is here, unfaithful kings still exist. Although God has removed his spirit from them, although he's removed his power from them, they are not yet consolidated into his kingdom rule the bible tells us though that he's coming back and that he's coming back soon and when he comes back revelation makes it plain that there will be no confusion as to who he is we won't be tempted in any way to mistake him for something other than the reigning and ruling king Revelation 19 gives us a terrifying glimpse of what he will look like when he comes back. That he will ride a white horse and that he will be called faithful and true because that is who he is and that he will come in righteousness and that he will wage war on the remnants of sin and death and unfaithfulness and that he will conquer them by the flaming sword that comes out of his mouth. And then on his robe and on his thigh, it says, King of kings, Lord of lords. And Isaiah 9, chapter 7, tells us that when that day comes, the increase of his government and of the peace which characterizes his government will, will have no end. And here's the wonderful link between David and Jesus and the kingdom to come. Isaiah 9-7 says, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so you see, brothers and sisters, there is coming a day where the king will assume the throne finally and for good. 
And we will get to dwell in the peace that He has secured by His righteousness. Where He will rule over us faithfully, kindly, mercifully, humbly, and wonderfully for all eternity. And so the invitation of Advent, brothers and sisters, is not simply to look back at a wonderful and glorious reality, which is that God would divest Himself of glory, that He would would humbly take upon Himself flesh, and although He would remain fully God, He would also experience all of the intricacies and difficulties and pains of human flesh so that He might become our empathetic high priest, our reigning and ruling king. But it is also a wonderful invitation to see that our longings, although they are here and they are real, they will be met in the face of Jesus. Those desires that we have that we're so often tempted to try to medicate or mitigate with things in this world will come to an end one day underneath the reign and rule of a good, mighty, uncompromising, gracious and kind King. And His name is Jesus. And so let's celebrate His coming and eagerly await His return. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this evening. Again, God, grateful for the opportunity to gather together and be reminded, Father, that all of the thirsts we have will be quenched at the return of Your Son. And so, God, may we not compromise. May we we accept no less, God, than the wondrous glory of Your Son. And Lord, where there are longings, may they remain such that when we see You, they are all the more wonderfully removed. And Father, as we come to Your table this evening, may we come to Your table, God, looking forward to the day when we finally recline at the wedding feast of the Lamb where we are wed finally to our groom, Your Son Jesus, where we are finally ushered into the home that He has prepared for us, where we will dwell in safety and in glory and in wonder for eternity. May we revel in that hope, that inheritance which has been secured for us, that no moth can destroy and no thief can steal because it is being guarded by your own power. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.